0: Welcome everybody back into Down The Line. As always, I'm your host, Carson Breber, and today we have a little bit of an interesting show for you because it's Monday, which means it's time to talk some tennis, but normally that means that we're immediately following a tournament's conclusion or during the slams, we're halfway through and we have plenty to talk about because it's the biggest stakes in tennis and there have been a bunch of matches played up to that point. But right now, because of the uniqueness of Miami with the 96 draw in the Thursday start date, we're just a few days into a tournament. So, Today, we're going to talk briefly at the beginning about some stuff with Miami, and then we're going to do a little bit of a historical topic like I was doing through a lot of the COVID shutdown when there was no tennis being played, so I think we'll have a little bit of fun with all that. But actually, before I get into even some of the standouts on the court for Miami thus far, I want to talk about something that happened indeed on the court, but was not really about tennis, and that was something that has grabbed headlines. Vasek Pospisil's little meltdown that he had where he kind of tanked a few points, hit an underhand serve broke a couple rackets, hit a ball as hard as he could, and then ultimately went on a bit of a verbal tirade against the chair ump, used an expletive towards the chair ump, and then was penalized a point for that, which was actually on set point, so he lost a set, and then went on a real tirade once he got down and sat at the bench about how basically the ATP president had been going off on him for an hour and a half the night previous and screaming at him for trying to unite the players, in his words. And so this is something that has grabbed attention because obviously, first of all, you don't always see this on on the court, and second of all, Pospisil is a guy who has been prominently involved with the PTPA, where he is a leader alongside Novak Djokovic, which is obviously the players union that is seeking to switch things up a little bit because the ATP has not been properly providing for some of the lower ranked players on tour for quite some time and seeking to enact some change there, and so he's a prominent guy in that respect, but first off, just generally looking at meltdowns. This stuff happens, and I don't hold it against the guy ever for getting irrationally upset. If I did, I would have some real things to work out with myself because I was a little bit of a diva on the court, and when I say a little bit, I mean I got very angry very often, so I don't think it's a reflection of character, I just think you get... You know, caught up in the heat of competition and things happen. Now, that doesn't mean you have the right to swear at somebody like Pospisil did, but generally breaking rackets, that's all fair game in my mind. It's You're not degrading the sport or whatever. It doesn't mean that you're some sort of bad person. It just means you're an intense competitor and maybe you're not as good at handling your emotions, but that doesn't mean that you're an inherently bad person. But anyways, the part that stands out about this is, of course, the claim about The ATP president yelling at him for an hour and a half, and then that ultimately leading to a breakdown, and this is a ridiculously hard time to be a player. Last week, I talked in great detail about Benoit Paire and sort of what he has been going through as of late, just tanking and saying, I'm not interested In actually trying in these tournaments, why would I? The prize money incentive isn't there. And I empathize with some of his claims. Ultimately, though, I come down on if you are going to reap the rewards, then you have to actually exert effort and you can't just show up and not try and ruin the competition and also take that opportunity away from other people. So I'm not in support of pair, but I just think that shows how hard this is and Pay is down 70-something percent at Miami. That is ridiculous. You're forced to exist in a bubble all the time on the road in a bunch of different countries, which is not fun at all. And then, of course, there's the issue of what Pospisil is actually fighting for here. He's fighting for player unity and a better world for the lower-ranked guys who just are not getting paid enough, period, and especially are not getting paid enough when we are seeing prize money dip across the board. And I'm not going to go through the statistics on this. I've done it plenty of times before, but the pay disparity in tennis is ridiculous compared to other sports. And that's starting with smaller money to begin with certainly compared to like the major american sports And you have guys who of course have to pay for their own travel and coaches and all this stuff And they're making maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year and that's a top 200 player in the world or whatever So that's just insufficient. But i've been through that many times over. I just think when you look at this It's sad. I really do feel bad for possible He's not a guy who normally conducts himself like this I find him to be a very pleasant individual based on what i've observed of him for the most part So I just think he's really feeling the pressure of a really unfortunate situation that the ATP is really mishandling because of whatever power they intend to continue to hold here and in enabling that power I just think Federer and Nadal have to do something and this is something that I've thought generally and maybe this is not the time to act because Pospisil just flat out doesn't look good and maybe a lot of people aren't going to empathize with him because he did not handle this situation in the perfect way but I just think When you have this kind of power, you have a responsibility to leave the sport better than you left it, and they instead have stood pat time and again and said, okay, we are fine with things as they are. We don't really want to shake up the status quo, and it's great for you, but it's really, really bad for a lot of people, and that's why I commend Djokovic for his efforts as that top guy to be that active voice for the, really the voiceless in the world of professional tennis, but there is no cause that would fail if they joined it. So that's just the fact of the matter. If it was the PTPA, if they were able to dramatically renegotiate things and get Paz and Djokovic to rejoin and work with the ATP, which I'm sure they'd be willing to do if the conditions were right, there's no way they would fail. You can't have the three biggest stars in the history of the sport, certainly the two biggest stars, maybe not the two best players indisputably, but Federer and Adal have more star power than Djokovic. If you have them on board... There is no counter to that. It's happening, and it's happening 100% of the time. So, generally, I felt really bad for here. I also certainly didn't feel good for the chair I didn't feel good for friend of the show, Mackie McDonald, who was opposite the net, who definitely was probably pretty uncomfortable with a man having a bit of a tantrum like that opposite him. But I just think this sucks, and empathy is the key here, and understanding that this is a really hard time, and he is fighting for some really important issues. And it's unfortunate that... Obviously, tensions can be so high, and yet the margins are so thin, and people will kind of look to pick apart the behavior of any person who's advocating for some sort of change, and certainly there's fuel to the fire for the counter-argument to his cause here, and I don't think it's legitimate fuel, but something they can point to and say irrational, out of control, whatever, but this was just unfortunate, so... I don't think it's really all that significant in the scheme of things. I do think it speaks to some greater issues, though, and I think that Paz Basil is a perfectly good guy fighting for a really good cause, and that is sort of the most important thing, not that he got upset on the court. All right, so now let's talk about what's going on in Miami. So not only are we just a few days in, unfortunately, we're missing a bunch of the top guys. We don't have team. we don't have Djokovic, we don't have Federer, we don't have Nadal, That's very unfortunate. Those are four of the five best players in tennis on the men's side. But what we do have is a couple of young guys balling out. And if you know down the line, you know how much we love to talk about the young guys, and there's actually a good bunch of them, but we're really going to focus in on two right now, and those are the two who are still alive. Emil Roussevori and Sebastian Corda are both into the round of 16, and I've talked about both these guys a little bit, more so Corda, because I think he's the more impressive of the two, and he's also an American, so a little bit of bias there, but I want to start with him, because... This has been a phenomenal run. So he starts things off by beating Radu Albot 3-in-love. That's a legitimate win. That is a solid player. Then he goes on and beats Fognini. Then he beats Karatsev, 3-in-love. And I didn't actually get to watch very much of that match, but if you are beating Karatsev, 3-in-love, with the tear that he has been on as of late, that means that you are kind of... Insane and you're doing something that nobody else has been able to touch He had only lost to really the top top players in the world And then you go out there and shake things up a little bit So that's a fantastic win and in the all but match He just straight up made him look like a child his pace from the ground was absurd from both sides He was just slapping the ball and consistently keeping it in and there was just no counter So I think he is my favorite young American Since I guess I would say Query, but I was way too young to know anything about Query. I was five when he was 18, I think. But I've just generally almost never really been that impressed by a young American. Obviously, there was Donald Young also before my time. He was the number one ITF junior, a massive flame out. I did not develop an opinion about him as a junior or anything like that. I just remember him as a mediocre pro. And then you have obviously the recent generation of guys where. There's certainly depth of talent. Fritz was a number one ITF junior. Tommy Paul was a junior French Open champion and a junior world number two. Tiafa was junior world number two. Opelka was junior world number four. And they've all panned out. And I definitely like Tommy Paul and Fritz the most out of that group. And I think that they're both really good players. But I think Korda has more potential because I've talked about the power, but for a 6'4 guy... He moves well too, I think that he moves probably better than a guy like Fritz, I think that he can be consistent from the ground, he can brush over the ball, hit it with some margin, but then can also dial it up, flatten it out, and I still think there's room for growth in his serve, he's not a huge server right now, and for a guy of his height, with his ability to generate pace from the ground, I don't think that should remain the case. So, he's 20, and there's room for growth, guys just are not developing as fast as they used to, and that's fine. But he's 9-3 on the year now. And he's beating some legitimate guys. So the results are 100% there. And also had a really good run at the French last year, of course. He also won a challenger in there this year. So he has Schwartzman next. I'm going to take him. I think he keeps the run alive. Now... Don't put too much weight into my predictions when it comes to these best of three tournaments because obviously there's some element of randomness. And also, I think I picked Dimitrov to make the semis here. Dimitrov lost his first match. And sometimes I show a little favoritism in my picks. I take the guys who I like. But you know what? I'm going to keep doing it here. So I am all in on Korda. He already had my stamp of approval. Now I'm giving him my double stamp of approval. I think he's going to be a top 10 guy down the road and I just can't wait to see how he continues to develop, how he performs against the top guys, how he does once we see him in slam some more because his junior resume was as good as any American in recent history and I would say his immediate start to his career has also been as good as any American recently and obviously it's not insane. He's not Shapovalov at that age, but... This is American tennis we're talking about here. It hasn't been there for a long time, so having any little bright light is a massive, massive win for sure. And then Rusevori is just a guy who's playing really well. I don't necessarily get as excited about him. He's a little bit older. He's been around for a little bit longer, and I don't think he's quite as talented, but He's 8-5 on the year. If you include Nur Sultan of last year, then he's won 11 of his last 17 tour matches, and he's won a match in every tournament that he's been in this year. That's worth attention. That is notable consistency, and this tournament has been fantastic. Beat Alcaraz in three, and boy does Alcaraz look good, and I'll talk about him a little bit as well in this Young Guys segment, but then also, of course, beats Zverev in three, which was the win of the tournament for him and just a guy who was a really nice all-around game got great control consistency from the ground he can ramp up the pace a little bit has awesome touch at the net does he have the kind of weapons that Corda does I don't think so but he has a nice blend of everything and you don't need to be able to hit a forehand 100 miles an hour to be a top guy on tour do I think he's going to be a top guy on tour no but I gotta shout out the guy who's playing well. He's one of the surprise stories of the tournament and he's been doing it kind of all year long. So another guy who was a former number four ITF junior, so the talent is obviously put on display there. He's just growing into his game as well. And that's, again, something that takes time for everybody these days. But some of the young guys who I also wanna shout out Not going to go in depth here, because I talk about Musetti all the time, and did in great detail last week, but he won two matches, he looked great, he played one of the most ridiculous defensive points I've ever seen against Michael Moe, in which he made like three lobs consecutively, was covering the court like a wild man, ended up losing the point because he let a ball go that he thought was going long and caught the line, but I don't care, he won it in my eyes, and then Alcaraz did look awesome, you just see he continues to ramp up the pace and get more and more comfortable there, Hugo Gaston won a match, not a guy I'm high on, you may remember him from the French, he's the drop shot king, he's like 5'8", 150, 20 years old, a former really successful junior, very low pro ceiling in my opinion, but still good to see a young guy there, and then really the last thing I want to talk about on the men's side for Miami is that Fouksovic's Has now won his last 10 matches, not against Rublev, but he has also now been matched up with Rublev in four straight tournaments. He's lost three of those matches. He withdrew from another one before they even started. I don't know what to say, man. Fouksoviks is really good. I've talked about how good he is multiple times before. That's a really tough draw, though, because Rublev is a lot better and Rublev is absolutely insane. So that's kind of it for the men's side. Last thing I want to touch on here with what's going on in Miami is Andreescu has looked really good. She beat Amanda Nisimova 766764 in a 2-hour, 45-minute match, and I thought it was great that her fitness could last her that long, because obviously she's still coming off of that injury and hasn't been out on the court in a competitive way all that much, and this was a great match. I think it's the best match through either side of the tournament thus far. It just reminded me of why I love both these players, who haven't been playing so much as of late or incredibly well, but two players who I'm incredibly, incredibly high on overall, You just see from both of them, the power from the ground, the ability to attack and yet do so under control to where you're not forcing the issue, you're developing points well, you're finishing points, and for Andreescu, it's just, the thing that is so remarkable is her variety and pace, her touch, her ability to mix things up there, to throw in a drop shot every couple points and kill you that way, and then also blow you off the court with power and hit the heavy topspin. It's, everything is in her bag, and she'll play Muguruza next, that's later today, that is a huge test, and I'm excited to see how she handles it, but it's really good to see her looking like herself, and again, able to stay out in the court for almost three hours, and gut out that win, because she just didn't really look like herself in the Australian, and was a little bit disappointing there, and I'm a huge optimist, I had her finishing the year as world number one, so I've got a little bit of a stake in that, and I'm excited to see that she looks good right now, but Honestly, not that much has happened. As I said, we're only a few days in. So, welcome to part two of today's show. As I mentioned, we're going to do a little bit of a history angle here because with none of the big three in Miami, meaning that somebody other than them is going to win a Masters 1000, which hasn't happened all that much over the last 15 years, and with Medvedev now at world number two, which hadn't happened at all over the past 15 years, with the exception of a guy named Andy Murray breaking in there, I have decided to rank the top five challengers to the big three of all time. Honestly, I really like this idea. Maybe I should have given it a full episode and a top 10 when things are slow, but you know what? We really didn't have that much active tennis to talk about here, so we're going with some stuff that has already happened, but I think is really interesting. So, number five. I have Andy Roddick, and obviously Roddick, a guy who was perennially in the top 10, was at one point a world number one and a slam champion, but both of those happened before the big three era began. He made five slam finals in his career, but only made three after Rafa broke through and only made one after Novak broke through in 2007, so I would keep that in mind when we're thinking about his overall status as a player versus his status as a challenger to the big three specifically, and again... 32 titles in his career, only 17 from 2005 on, so he just wasn't at his best in the big three era, but did still have six straight top 10 finishes from 2005 through 2010, although he did finish number six or lower every year after Djokovic came onto the scene again in 07, but if you look at how he performed against them individually, 5-4 versus Djokovic, obviously, I think the only player of note historically to have a winning record against him, and they were 1-1 in slams. Now, of course, all meetings but one out of those were before Djokovic really reached his peak in 2011, when he was still the consensus number three guy in the world, but still, it's not peak Djokovic, but it does matter to have that winning record when you are a man in a one-man club. There's not many one-man clubs out there, and it's a good thing to be in, as long as it's a good thing that you're in there for, not a bad thing. So, against Nadal, he was 3-7, 1-1 in slams, now his win in slams was in 0-4, so that definitely doesn't count the same, but a 3-7 overall record against Nadal, very solid, but then of course, against his greatest rival out of this group, it was not much of a rivalry at all, 3-21 versus Fed, 0-6 in finals, 0-8 in slams, and 0-4 in slam finals, so it's tough to climb that much higher when the guy you have a winning record against was not at his peak yet. You never want to slam directly against any of these guys, and you have a 3-21 record against the one who you played against by far the most. He did win 25.6% of his matches against them combined. That's a solid number. It's not the best on this list, but it's also not the worst, but it's not good enough. He was an incredibly consistent challenger overall, one of the best players of this era, and I would say before Murray, the best player alongside those three guys, although there's really not that much time between Djokovic breaking through and Murray breaking through, but overall, he is not going to climb any higher than that on this list, which is interesting because at number four, I have Stan Wawrinka, and who was a better player between the two? I would say Andy Roddick, who actually has a better overall record against the big three, Andy Roddick does, but it's really, really hard to turn down one of two guys of this era, two guys ever, to beat the big three in three slam finals and perform so well against them in the biggest moments, and that's why I can't have Stan lower than this, because his wins were so much more historically significant, and he also had to go up against all of them in their primes, whereas Roddick, again, did not. So, I also want to say the reason that I'm emphasizing so much slams and finals is because beating the big three in the biggest moments is tougher than beating them at any other time. Certainly when it comes to the best of five format, but finals are also just really significant. So his individual records against them are not going to impress you. 3 and 19 versus Nadal, 6 and 19 versus Djokovic, 3 and 23 versus Fed, but against Nadal he was 1 and 3 in finals and 1 and 1 in slam finals 1 and 2 in slams against Fed he was 1 and 1 in finals 1 and 7 in slams that's not great but of course Djokovic is the reason he's on this list 4 and 4 in slams against Djokovic and 3 of his losses went 5 sets you think about the classic Australian Open match that they had they went Djokovic's direction another one that went Stan's direction and he is 3-2 and two against Djokovic in finals, and of course, 2-0 and o in slam finals, which is one of the more remarkable feats in modern tennis history. Overall record, 9-61, 13% winning. Very bad. Not on par with anybody else on this list, but 6-13 and 13 in slams, 3-1 and one in slam finals, and again, did not have the consistency of erotic, had a career high of number 3, was 5-time top 10. From 2014 through 2016 was number four at the year's end each time. So very consistently established himself in that tier along with the big four and had 16 career titles. So obviously a guy who broke through late, a guy who wasn't as consistent day to day, year to year, except for at his real peak 2014 through 2016 when he was very consistently that top five level guy, but it's because of the biggest moments. And so I would feel foolish having him below Roddick who never beat any of them in a slam final, who it's not like he was... A real threat to them consistently who got so dominated by Fed over a guy who beat two of these players at the biggest stage in tennis and beat Djokovic multiple times there. So that's why I have stand number four. Number three is an interesting candidate. It's Dominic Thiem who is the most prominent guy who is really still playing in a relevant fashion on this list. Everybody else is either retired or damn near retired. But team is an interesting guy because he hasn't beaten them on the biggest stage as far as in a slam final, but he has been so good against them so consistently, I think he has to be here even above a guy like Stan because I just think he's the better player and I think that that shows with everything outside of literally looking at how many slam titles a player has. And the fact that Stan was specifically a nightmare matchup for Djokovic, which I also think is worth noting. So team is a career high of number three. Obviously, he was not the man to break through into the top two out of... The next gen, that was Neil Medvedev, but has 17 titles to his name, one Masters 1000, one slam, which comes with many, many asterisks because he did not have to go through a single member of the big three to do it or even the big four, and so that does matter when two guys just aren't in the field and another one gets disqualified in the fourth round. If he had gotten beat fair and square, that would be a different thing, but he didn't. But team already has five top eight finishes. Those are consecutive. He's been three times top five and is probably marching towards that again this year. And has been up against the big three in three slam finals already. But again, it's the head-to-heads that are so incredible. Five and seven versus Djokovic, two and two in slams. Obviously, having beaten him at the French a couple times. Zero and one in finals. Went five against him in the Aussie last year in a very strange match. Didn't come out on top though. Five and two against Fed. One and zero in finals. That's pretty insane to have a 5-2 and two record against Fed. Not many players in the history of tennis have a winning record against him. Djokovic-Nadal team, that might be the whole list of significance. Maybe somebody's out there 1-0 and oh against him, but not many of them. And then 6-9 and nine versus Nadal. 0-4 oh in finals and 1-4 and in slams and obviously has not been able to get past Rafa in the French where both of them are at their best. But a combined 16-18 and 18 record against the big three... That is as good as it gets, and maybe it hasn't happened in the slam final yet, maybe it won't for some time, and there's a case to be made that Stan's significance of those few wins is enough to have him higher than this, because he did something that team has not been able to do yet, and I'm not sure the team could, that's just the thing about Stan, he was fearless, he was a big hitting guy who on his best day could blow basically anybody off the court, including Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, and team hasn't done that yet. But I don't know, man, he's beaten these guys everywhere and he's beaten them consistently and to be almost 500 against them collectively, nobody else has ever come very close to that in the history of this. So that really does matter. Number two, I have Juan Martin Del Potro and Delpo is obviously such a tremendous talent and I really, really do hope that we get to see him again at some point dealing with all the injuries that he has. But this is a guy who has probably the most iconic wins over the big three Tied with Stan maybe, but the 09 US Open where he beats Nadal and Fed in succession, that has never been done by somebody outside of the Big Four since I think it was David Nalbandian did it at some random tournament. Definitely not at a slam en route to a title, of course, so that is historically incredible. But he was really competitive with all these guys too. 7-18 and 18 versus Fed in their careers, 2-5 and 5 in slams, 4-2 and 2 in finals. You want to talk about a guy who steps up in the biggest moments, 4-2 and 2 in finals against Fed that's pretty darn good, 6-11 versus Rafa in his career, 2-4 in slams, 0-1 in finals, that's also pretty good to beat Rafa twice in the slams, and then 4-16 versus Djokovic, 0-5 in slams, 0-2 in finals, definitely didn't give Nole as much trouble, but 2-0 in the Olympics, and prevented him from getting that one title, the only title that is missing from his trophy case, or at least was part of preventing him from that, so that does matter, but it's not as important as a slam, I certainly wouldn't say, but a combined winning percentage of 27.4, pretty damn good, definitely not nearly as good as team, but it's pretty good, and was a guy who, when he was healthy, was incredible, 22 titles, 72% career winning percentage, 3-time top 5 finisher, 5-time top 10, 7-time top 11, if we can just not draw the line at this arbitrary place and give you one more spot, And, obviously, that's just about every year he's been healthy because there have been so many years where he's not even ranked or he's well outside the top 100 or 200 because he's just unavailable to play or he doesn't get to play through a full season, so his ranking is distorted. But when he's been at his best, because of the weapon that is his forehand, his big serving... I think he's as good of a bet as anybody to beat these guys. Has had a number of classic matches. I think back to the Wimbledon semifinal against Djokovic. That was a fantastic one. Maybe he didn't win it, but he was very close. I believe in the Olympics, Fed beat him 19-17 in the third, and so he could just go toe to toe with these guys. Arguably better than anybody, and I would lump Andy Murray into that conversation when they are at their peaks. But obviously, Andy Murray is the number one guy on this list, far and away. There's a reason that sometimes we call it a big three and sometimes we call it a big four because there was a historically great player alongside them the whole way. Personally, I think the gap is now too large to call it a big four, but if you do, how can I hold it against you? It's like a big three plus one because Murray was not in the same tier as them, but he was in a completely different tier from everybody else as well. If you look at his head-to-heads against them, seven and 17 versus Rafa, pretty good. Three and one in finals, very good. Two and six in slams, Against Djokovic, his biggest rival, 11 and 25, but 8 and 11 in finals. That is very impressive. And 2 and 8 in slams. And then versus Fed, the guy we played best, 11 and 14, 3 and 5 in finals, 1 and 5 in slams. Has 29 combined wins against them. That is a record. A winning percentage of 34.1. That is the second best on this list by a decent margin. Had 14 titles directly against them. That is certainly a record. And a 45% winning percentage against them in finals. That is also a record. Now, still just five and nineteen against them in slams. And that is something that you could hold against him. He's also three for eleven in slam finals. And so it was tough for him to beat them on the biggest stage, but he did it about as well as anybody else with the exception of Stan Wawrinka and of course the consistency is what sets him apart from the pack he's the only player to hold the world number one ranking with all of them around which he did so for 41 weeks and also was the year-end number one in 2016 won three slams tied for the most with Stan again made 11 slam finals which nobody else has touched nobody else has been able to break through and beat members of the big three enough times to get to double-digit slam finals not even close I think that Stan with four is the second most out of this era. In fact, I'm pretty confident about that, unless you want to include Roddick, who again made a couple of those before the real big three era, and then won 46 titles far and away the most, 14 Masters 1000s, a tour finals and Olympics. He won everything, and he did that during the greatest era in tennis with a big three like we have never seen before, and we'll never see again, so... In a different era, who knows what Andy Murray is. In this era, he is by far the best challenger to a trio of tennis players that is just completely unprecedented in the history of the sport. Some honorable mentions, who I do have. Daniil Medvedev, just because, of course, he is the guy to finally break the barrier and get into the... Top two. The thing is, he just hasn't beaten them enough. He's never beaten Fed because he hasn't played Fed since he had his breakthrough. He's only one and three versus Rafa, but he is three and five versus Djokovic and has given him some real trouble. David Ferrer, the pinnacle of consistency, 11 and 54 versus them combined. Better winning percentage than Stan, which again is why I don't have Stan higher. Do keep in mind that he's 12 and 61 against them combined. I think I said nine and 61 earlier, but it's 12 and 61. And then, Burdick, 13-65 and against them combined. Again, very similar winning percentage, slightly better than Stan. They are all right in the same pack there, but those two were just so consistent. And I guess you could look early era and say like a Hewitt, an Bandy, and a Davidenko, but they never really overlapped with peak Djokovic, and they were never really all that much of a threat, so I don't think they have a strong case. I feel pretty clear about the top five guys who I have, and maybe there's an argument for some rearranging in there. So that'll do it for us here today a little bit of a two-pronged episode some current stuff some historical stuff but what is wrong with that i love them both equally and i could talk about them both all day and we will talk about some of this current tennis all day next week once miami has concluded because of course the first masters 1000 of the year is a very big deal and i am looking forward to seeing how things go the rest of the way but with that i've been carson braver as always i hope you have enjoyed this was down the line